Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, dear listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Serious. Marie. Serious stuff. We're going to get. Serious. We're going to get murdered in our sleep. We're going to get murdered in our sleep. Yeah. I told you I didn't want to do this. Yeah, it's going to happen. Dear listeners, I am letting you know that we are going down. We are going down the path of the one topic that I that I was extremely hesitant, if not reticent to discuss. Like specifically said, I specifically said this would be a a, a difficult topic, a potentially, mm-hmm. you know, if there was ever a chance for us to see the men in black, this would be the topic where it happens. This, yeah, this would be up there, right? Like I was like, yeah, let's talk about the serial killers who dissolve their victims in acid. That'll be fine. Let's not do this. The acid bath murders like, would be a great episode, Marie. It's so much science. It is so much science, but no, 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 no. Look what we're doing instead. What are we doing? Listeners, Tell people what we're doing. This series. So we talked about last time with Rob that we were going to begin a series on the history of modern day UFO research and easily the most important part of that story that you're not going to get anywhere, but the darkest reaches of the conspiracy internet is the story of Robert Bigelow and Bigelow aerospace. This is a, this is a guy who famously purchased the skinwalker ranch and brought allegedly uh, well, I think we have to start throwing allegedly if I'm going to be our foe our foe legal counsel <laughs> we're going to throw allegedly, allegedly. we're going to th- we're just going to throw a big old allegedly before everything we say here you know hypothetically he, if one was to purchase a paranormal plot of land in Utah <laughs> it could be that it's it is no exaggeration to say that at the somewhere in every single major UFO event of the last 30 years, Robert Bigelow mm-hmm. is involved somehow. He's yes. like the Kevin Spacey of <laughs> UFO conspiracy world. You know, he's always he's he's there's always seven. You know, he's always it's even closer than Kevin Kevin Spacey, Spacey, dude. What is that one? That's Kevin Bacon. Whatever. Oh, my God. Whatever. It doesn't matter. No, no, you just alienated. Okay, come back to us, dear viewers. Okay, sorry. Don't hold it against him. Seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Okay, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. In the conspiracy world, it could be it could honestly be like two degrees of Robert Bigelow because the guy. You know, every single big name, every single big event from to the Stars Academy today to the Carpenter Affair to Bob Lazar, you know, all of it, all of it has to do with Robert Bigelow. And honestly, yes, the big reason for that is Robert Bigelow is the only person interested in UFOs that has enough money to just throw it around on random crap. 
Well, and it's not just throwing it around. I mean, the interesting thing is if you ask anybody who, you know, is just sort of doesn't have a ad nauseum interest in this stuff, who's the most famous person that they know that are, that's involved in the space program now? It's not through the government. They will say easily um, – Elon Musk, yeah. right? Elon Musk, the new Iron Man, the guy who's, you know, getting stoned with Joe Rogan, yada, yada, yada. But if you say, well, who's, who is he working with? Who's the person who's actually probably wealthier than him? And who's much more, again, not sending a car, a Tesla into space to orbit the moon and is just sitting back and amassing data and artifacts and information and is just, you know, growing in his knowledge while Elon Musk is out, you know, on the war path calling people pedophiles. Nobody knows about Robert Bigelow, right? And that's the thing that I think is so fascinating is that here's a character that is not just known for, you know, I mean, he's, he's prestigious in his wealth. He's prestigious in sort of the amount that he has given to the study and his influence in the study and his influence in actually putting things into outer space. Right. And he's still so low key with that in the modern, in sort of the modern world. His story honestly would have, is fascinating without the alien stuff. He is a fascinating character in the history of science and technology in the United States regardless of whether or not he ever actually finds a UFO or whatever. But his involvement in this field has led to just, I mean, again, to the amount of, uh, the amount of web of internet space wasted on Robert Bigelow, conspiracy theories and ideas and speculation and things is, and wasted maybe is the wrong word. Cause Dedicated to it. I dedicated mean, to it. Yeah. Dedicated how? to it is yeah. a, it's just tremendous. So this series, what we wanted to do was really get to the bottom of this important character in this, in this field, put this information together in a way that's digestible to you and hopefully deal with some of the, uh, deal with some of this, of the just ridiculousness and um, both ridiculousness, misinformation, but also deal with some of the stuff that if you're interested in this subject, you should probably know about because yes. he, again, his place in this story, he is the Walt Disney of oh. UFOs. <laughs> There's no way other way to say it. So I would say, yeah, he's definitely. And like people always like some of our, some of our uh, peers in the podcasting industry always make fun of like, Oh yeah. You know, Bob Bigelow, he, you're, Marie, you're scared of Bob. And it's like, no, I think here's someone who actually is somewhat terrifying in a real world sense. <laughs> seriously. But no, everyone's like, you know, but but seriously, here's, okay, so here's a person who has a incredible drive, an incredible, and we'll get into that, like an incredible amount of motivation and uh, and is willing to work for it. He has a questionable moral compass, right? He's subjectively able to pick and choose things with, based on his own self-interest. He has a huge amount of money that is well invested and diversified. And he has an interest in 
acquiring things and knowledge that to me is is scary, right? I mean, that that alone is like somebody who wants to know something, but wants to know something so badly that he is willing to pursue it and take it away from other people so no one else can see it, you know, and it has this sort of secretiveness to it, but it's very low key. It's not like, I mean, again, it's not like you're reading about him in the newspaper on a daily basis, you know, ticking off the Federal Reserve or doing something that is flagrant, right? He's low key. And that to me is like somebody that has that much potential and that much energy and power is, is, is a bomb, in my opinion. And that's who we're covering on this week's episode. Jake, roll the tape. Okay, the first the first thing I want to cover here, honestly, is just how <laughs> Robert Bigelow is a again. This is a real person. He has he has a family. He owns a house and a bunch of property. Like this is a real person. But at the same time, separating the man from the myth is really difficult. Is really difficult. Really and difficult. I, there there are there are fundamental facts about this story that we are going to have to kind of give disclaimers on, I guess, where we're going to say there's oh. differing there's differing uh information here about this very basic yeah. piece of his life. Part of that is because of how carefully he's been able to con- this again, this is a person who in all other ways uh, well okay this is a man who's coming from very humble beginnings Mm -hmm. and throughout his life appears to have had a very strong libertarian streak to his thinking famously even today he does not have a computer an email address (laughs) a laptop a phone like a cell phone famously he doesn't use any of that stuff in his business and he's building stuff for the International Space Station. And the yes. man doesn't have a computer at his desk. No. He has, like, Lillian, right? Or whoever his secretary has yes. been for the last bazillion and 25 yeah. years, right? Yeah. So crazy. Okay. So finding information on this person is, is a real challenge. And so there's going to be some speculation here. There's going to be a little bit of stuff. Allegedly. Where, right. There's going to be a lot of stuff where we say allegedly where we are going to have to point out that this is conjecture or this is our own idea, but we're, we're still, we're endeavoring our best to do this. We're also, we're also pretty consistently and constantly trying to get information on this person. I mean, we've been, I mean, Marie, how long have you been interested in Robert Bigelow? Well, it was funny. I was going back into my files and it was like four years ago, three years ago. I think when we first met clippings and stuff and it's like, when we started to talk about Skinwalker Ranch, which is a fascinating subject, but really the more interesting is is this guy to me. It's like that's the most interesting thing. Absolutely. About that. And just but trying to find like Chris is saying, trying to find out what's what's real versus what is the mythos that he's just kind of put in front of him to sort of shield him from any other exposure. Like that in itself is kind of wild because. People are people are 
associating him with all sorts of really huge, crazy, immense conspiracies. Yeah. Like the biggest conspiracies you could come up with. So it's sort of like, well, you know, it's easy then to say, well, that's just all hype, right? That's exactly what the guy wants you to believe because that's the, that's the most outlandish thing that you could buy into. Yes. So anything can happen. Anything could be real at that point. And it's like, that's a pretty clever disguise. It's a, it's an amazing disguise. And part of, part of making it even more difficult to pull apart fact from fiction, I guess is the, Mm -hmm. is the very real fact that like Rob was alluding to in our first episode of this kind of going over the general history of the UFO subject, a lot of this story and a lot of the figures that Bigelow is part is, is going to become wrapped up in, you know, Harold Pudoff and John Alexander and Kit Green and mm-hmm. Paul Benowitz and, you know, Richard Doty and these other figures, they themselves have been implicated in scandals whereby the government seems to have used them specifically to spread disinformation amongst the UFO community. So, and that's, mm-hmm. that's not even, that's not even speculation, right? That's just people have, you know, I mean, well, I, Oh my God. Allegedly <laughs> it is somewhat speculation. Hypothetically. If yes. I was going to, if one was to do this, right, right. You would have a, a person in the, in the air force contact another a UFO investigator and trick them into thinking that they've seen real crashes and things and the whole thing. And we're going to get into that too, but Bigelow has been involved in some real major scandals. And some of those scandals are things still that the UFO community wants to hide. Right. Many of them involve MUFON. Many of them involve many of them involve people who are still part of and leading MUFON. Part of those things involve people that you're going to be able to hear and see on YouTube or at AlienCon or at the UFO Congress or at any of these other events. And any of these fine established events. <laughs> right. And a lot of these figures are now part of To the Stars Academy. So th- to say that this is a to say that this is an, uh, I don't know. This is like the, it's like the story of all of it, Marie. <laughs> it's the story of all of it. But if, and it's ruining my marriage. If, if we, all right, we, we've got some to unpack there, but if we step back <laughs> and just say, but if you look at sort of this, these tumultuous, you know, sc- scandals and issues that have sort of, plagued MUFON or anything else, he's been able to weave in and out of that and is relatively Teflon. Yes. And I think right. the, I think the reason probably rhymes with bunny. Well, yeah, man. I mean that, but that's, that's, that's to me, it's sort of like, again, you don't know enough about him. Like people are like, well, he, he's hoarding or he's done this or he's taken that or, we had this, but, you know, uh, as of this date, it was missing from the warehouse. Or we don't, you know, he bought off the the FAA for X, Y, and Z yeah. or whatever it is, right? But it's sort of like, well, did he? Yeah, did ev- he? Everyone, has a neg- everyone has a negative Bigelow story, but nobody's got any documentation. And nobody has any sort of proof that they had anything to begin with, because if they did, he now owns it. Right. So he's that, he's that like, to me, he's just that like vapor, 
which again is something to that's impressive just in a business sense. If you can come in and your longevity over a period of time and you come into this community that's sort of fraught with all sorts of, you know, um, maybe conjecture and rumor and maybe there's some truth to it. And he comes in and he just basically extracts what he wants and is gone. And nobody can really – and just leaves sort of this, this you know, upwake in his path. It's – that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> I mean, it's cold, but it's pretty impressive. It's wild, yeah. Just, just for the record, I want all of my stuff to be burned when I die. Hypothetically, um, yes. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Okay, so Bigelow – Robert – Bigelow is born May, t- May 12th, 1945 near Las Vegas, Nevada. He, he grows up. He's, he's a, he's a, a Las Vegas guy through and through. Yeah. He's lived there his entire life. All, you know, his just, you know, he is tied to Las Vegas. Yes. As a kid, he grew up, uh, he would attend Highland elementary school in Las Vegas and actually, it's there at Highland Elementary School where he's first he says that he is first exposed really to a, a major scientific epiphany is maybe the wrong word, but just being being impressed by the power of science. Influence, I think I think anyone right. anyone interested in the sciences has this moment. You know, for me, mm-hmm. it was for me, it was seeing uh, seeing a nanofluidic device at a conference when I was in high school, you know, for him, it's this, it's this event. And so this is a quote from Bloomberg. And again, as always, all the notes on this are, are, are going to be available. We'll put them in the, um, mm-hmm. we'll put them on the website and we'll, we'll put them in the show notes. But so this is the quote from a Bloomberg article here. Quote, Robert Bigelow was no more than nine years old when he heard his first atom bomb explosion. He was upstairs in his bedroom in a two story brick house in Las Vegas. There was a low rumble in the early hours in the morning. A bright flash seared the horizon. All of a sudden, Bigelow remembers, it lights up like daytime. After that, there were dozens more explosions out on the Nevada National Security Site, just 75 miles away in the Mojave Desert. During the day, he and his classmates at Highland Elementary School were often sent out into the playground to watch as mushroom clouds roiled 40,000 feet into the sky. The atomic tests were Bigelow's first encounter with the wonders of science. As he grew up in the Las Vegas of the early 50s, then still a small town, foretastes of the space age transfixed him. Exotic jet planes screaming overhead from Nellis Air Force Base and stories of UFO sightings were counted by friends and family. At 12, Bigelow decided that his future lay in space travel, despite his limitations. I hated algebra, he says. I knew I was no good at it. So, he resolved to choose a career that would make him rich enough that, one day, he could hire the scientific expertise required to launch his own space program. Until then, he would tell no one, not even his wife, about his ultimate goal. It took more than 40 years, end quote. What an amazing origin story. I mean, he might as well have just gotten bitten by a radioactive spider. Right, and this is one thing about this guy, because he is so carefully controlled. Cinematic. Yeah, because he is so carefully controlled, Everything said about him, we have no idea if that is true. It makes sense. The timeline works. He he did go to this school. He, he did, did go to this school. This base was there. They were doing these atomic bomb explosions. 
other people I in guess. Las Vegas at the time were able to see these. You know, all of that Spouse. makes sense. It's it's just such an interesting thing, right? I mean, it's so science fiction-y, though. I mean, the idea, again, that he's upstairs in his bedroom playing with jets in this, you know, kind of traditional two-story brick house. And then, you know, he, there's a the rumble and the flash of light. And it lights up like daytime. I mean, yeah. come on. That's Spielberg. It's, it's pretty amazing. But, but it is also, like, again, so there's sort of two stories in there. There's sort of... Uh, for his origin stories, the big origin story, there's like, I've broken them into three, which is, again, the, the atom bomb, his general love of science, which he was, you know, which you sort of end with, which is like he, you know, he's amassing wealth. He wasn't good at math and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't smart enough, dang it, but he had moxie. Yeah, right? he wanted so to become a space he entrepreneur. He persevered. And he was going to be the space entrepreneur, which is sort of, again, sort of this bootstrap, very, very vivid. But the move, like, so out of the two, like, and I would say the atomic testing is not as well known as the story that he tells most. Right. Which do you want to do you want to do that one? So the other one uh-huh. is. So supposedly his grandparents had a UFO encounter. And this is actually going to be something that we are going to we're going to talk about this almost every every time someone who seems to be too rich or powerful or, you know, connected to get involved in UFOs. That's it's always the first thing I look for, (laughs) because honestly, a lot of the time that's what their origin Mm -hmm. story is. Their parents saw something. They saw something. Mm -hmm. A friend, you know, the. It's not as common as you would expect for people to have these experiences. However, I bet if you asked your immediate circle of friends and family, if any of them had seen something anomalous, and it doesn't have to be a UFO, but just something anomalous, you know, who's thinks, who thinks they've seen a ghost or has, uh, you know, had a dream that was prophetic. Mm-hmm. Everyone has had one of these experiences. It's just part of the human condition. We just don't talk about it to each other because we think, you know, it's weird. We think we're going crazy or whatever. Anyways. Yeah, but but his is again. His is extreme. His so, story yeah. is, again, it's, it yeah. is cinematic. So this is, this is the quote here again. This is again from that same Bloomberg article um, where, uh, and the, the article itself is called Robert Bigelow plans a real estate empire in space. And again, we will link it it's from 2013. Mm-hmm. So quote, Of all the UFO stories he heard as a boy, Bigelow recounts one in particular that had a profound effect on him. One night in May 1947, his maternal grandparents were driving down the remote Kyle Canyon Highway, returning to Las Vegas after a trip to the mountains, when they saw in the sky ahead something they thought was an airplane on fire. But as it drew closer, they realized it was a huge and unidentifiable oval object, glowing bright red. When the terrified couple pulled over to the side of the road, It bore down on them, finally filling their field of vision before at the last second executing an abrupt 90 degree turn and disappearing. Bigelow heard about the incident years later from his grandmother. His grandfather never liked to talk about what he'd seen. He was still bothered by it, he says, because they both thought they were going to die that night, end quote. So, but here's the interesting thing, too, is from 
Zach Van Eyck from the Desert News staff writer, the Desert News staff writer, um, and the Desert News and this author, uh, as we start to get more into the middle part of the story with Skinwalker, is one of the authors or one of the reporters that he speaks to a lot. Yes. Has a slightly different story on it. And again, it's a, it, I'm going to read this because I think it is almost, it, it kind of goes, harkens back to, again, like a lot of tropes, a lot of cliches. The same sort of principle, but it's Bigelow's interest in the paranormal stems from his youth. At the time, Las Vegas was, by comparison, a sleepy little hamlet. There wasn't much for locals to do in the 1950s except drive down the street for an ice cream cone after dinner. One of those evening cruises, Bigelow's grandparents had a close encounter that not only had a profound effect on them, but when he was told the story two years later, strongly affected their 10-year-old grandson. This ball of light that appeared to be on flames was coming right at them, Bigelow recalled. They swerved the car off the road in a pretty dramatic way and kind of ducked, waiting for the impact, but there was no impact. Instead, it made a 90-degree turn. It came right at them and then went vroom. It just went the opposite direction. It not only shook them up because they thought they were about ready to die, but it gave them something to think about for weeks, months, and years after. What? Yeah, what's... What? What's what's interesting about this story too, and listeners, it's sleepy little Hamlet fifties. <laughs> I mean, no. you can feel it, like you could see the cars. You could, you can see like the sort of you can hear the nineteen fifties. Yeah, you music. see, you see a kid with a beanie running down the street, it. a little propeller hat, right in a lollipop. The, you could feel it, right, the, and you it, could see sort of the big car going for ice cream. What? Yeah. The interesting thing about this case for for listeners who are, you know, for listeners who are as interested in these subjects as kind of we are and that we talk about here on the show, Bigelow's family story in this time period is not common amongst people who report. Well, okay, it is it is more it is not the it is not an abduction case. It is not necessarily out of it is not necessarily out of the ordinary. Yes. But it is also not a solid craft. He describes a ball of light, an orb, a, a red-orange glowing orb, which tends to be actually one of the, the major cases that groups like MUFON get every year. And this event clearly has a profound effect on his view of the subject. This is speculation, of course. However... What was reported on Skinwalker Ranch? It was orbs of energy. Orbs. It wasn't craft. It wasn't solid craft. It was orbs. What was the what was the video? What was the video that they just released on Twitter from Bigelow Aerospace? It is an orb. Those jokers. Everyone that Bigelow surrounds himself with is interested in non. Let's say the UFO world is kind of split up into two major camps. There is the camp that believes in the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which tends to be an idea that these craft are filled with occupants, that they are physical things. These are, these are, they just want some ice cream. They're well, just going downtown for some ice cream. That if, if Sorry. this, this hypothesis would say that if we got access to a craft, this hypothesis mm-hmm. would say you could take a photo of a craft. You could find crash debris. You could find a body. 
It's a we could object. right. It is a physical object that we could understand with modern science. The other side of the coin, though, is 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 more of a what do they call themselves? Rob Rob had a great term for them. And I'm blanking on it now from the last episode, but these are the folks who believe that this is a consciousness or a. It is moral. I, I call them the metaphysical crowd. It's more of a a philosophical view of things. These things are not. We don't know what the. We don't know what these things people are seeing are. However, they appear to be something like energy beings or balls of energy, or they appear to be uh, telepathic. They appear to be related to our conscious mind in a way that makes them difficult to capture on videotape. That makes them break the apparent laws of physics. That makes them makes it unlikely that we would ever meet an occupant of a craft because to begin with, what if the occupants are the orbs themselves we're seeing? What if there is no craft? What if these things are, are interdimensional or what, you know, anything else, whatever. I Sorry, think you know this, how I feel about the orbs. I do. I do. I think this is a very clear. <laughs> I, I think that it's very clear that Bigelow is interested in this. Or maybe not interested in more so to the extent or the 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 ignorance or ignoring of other data. But I think that this mm-hmm. has a really big effect on him. I think that his his grandparents sighting of an orb of a non, uh, you know, an energy thing, not a craft is is an important one. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think this can, with the other story of the atomic bomb, yes. right? Which the atomic bomb is basically, you know, man's destruction, right? We did that yeah. to ourselves. We created something that is a mass, you know, it's basically death, death yes. and destruction, right? And so I think that that's almost, again, there's there's not a lot of anthropomorphizing with that. Like, it's yeah. not the, it's not it kind of has that same feel to it as an orb or as a consciousness event. Like you're seeing something Mm -hmm. that lights up the sky. It's changing your consciousness. It's not, not necessarily in a good way. It's not like, you know, it's not, it's, but it's terror. It's this immense, it's like awe, right? It is literally the definition of being in awe of something. It's not good. It's immense. And that is what I would think is sort of the, uh, the atomic bomb. I can't imagine how much more groovy Bigelow would have been had his grandparents gotten, you know, abducted by one of, uh, what's his face, Woody Derenberger's naked aliens from Lanulos. <laughs> you know, hey, buddy, we're going to have a party. Let's go on our love ship. Hey, what your car. Yeah, we're getting naked on, on Venus. That's not what happened to Bigelow's grandparents. No, but it's it's even before that. It's again, it's like happy days, right? Yeah. It's like well, it's right? it's like it's it, so Spielberg. It's it's it's, like, it's it's classic Stephen King before stuff goes really awry, right? Before the real s hits the fan. That's yeah. the that's the setting. It's right? like it's, it's, it's like uh, I, I don't know. It's oh, kind of like it's kind of like uh, Leave It to Beaver meets Doctor Strangelove. Kind of. That's exactly right. it. So he decides, so, okay, this is him as a kid. Uh, You know, he goes to high school, you know, all that stuff, whatever. It's fine. His family is in real estate. His grandfather uh, actually uh, famously converted a single story barn on their property into 
the, you know, the first Bigelow <laughs> apartment building. So he decides that since his grandfather did it and his father, Robert L. Bigelow, did it, he would also go into real estate. So, yeah. But he, his dad, really quickly, his dad was better known for carpet, for carpet sales. Oh, interesting. That's nice. where his dad got the money. Oh, yeah, another – and he would he would partner with other people that were in real estate. This is also how he got more into real estate was he would be the sort of the wholesaler and the person that would hook them up with the carpeting for all of their all of their apartments or all of their hotels or all of whatever. His Bigelow carpet was a big deal. Man, so again, very lucrative. If, you know, if but for the grace of God, Bigelow would have gotten big into upholstery or something and not space travel. I mean, life, life there's is weird. So, life is there's weird. just so many, there's so many, I don't know. The, but the weird thing, uh, I will say this about this story is it's like, there is no alternate, right? There's no alternate <laughs> path. There's no, there's no other timeline for Robert Bigelow that whatever, no. like that he's constructed. And maybe there, I'm sure that there probably was, but in the self-construction of his, of his own narrative, it's like, he was, this is where his, this is where it turned on for him. You know, in one of these stories, and that is the path that he went. Right. Down. I mean, he came. He came out of his. That? He came out of his out of, of his mother's womb. womb. He saw a uh, you know a uh, what's it a mobile thing as a baby, one of those mobiles that had right. stars and planets on them, and he was exactly. like, "I will go to space," I and that was how he did it. That was the plan, right? But it's sort of like again, Wild. there's not there's not a lot of of. Uh, of anything countering this narrative. Like there's not a no. lot of like, eh. and then he just sort of, you know, bummed around and read Jack Kerouac for a few years trying to find himself. Yeah. There's he's no, not that guy. No. Right. There's no Kerouac. There's no on the road again. There's, he's not a hippie. He's not, there's not a lot of inner, you know, inner introspection. Is that even a word I'm thinking of? Introspection. Yeah, no, yeah, introspection. Like, yeah. There's he's no, like, he's there's like, no consideration. If, I'm doing of, this. Yeah. So or doubt. Th- that we are seeing in any of this narrative either. No, not at all. That's a good point. So, uh, 62, he goes to the university of Reno, decides he's going to do banking and real estate and eventually will graduate, but not from the university of Reno. He'll graduate from Arizona state university in 1967. However, when he graduates or or as he graduates, uh, or not as sorry, before he graduates officially, his father, Robert L. Bigelow, will actually die tragically in, a, in, a, in an airplane crash. Mm-hmm. So this, this part of the story is, I think, I, I'm just, I am blown away by it and just flabbergasted at the way that, again, the universe works in these weird ways sometimes. So, yeah. Marie, do you want to give us the, the kind of the lowdown yes. here on this story? So he, his father was returning from Los Angeles in a small aircraft with uh, three other people, pilot himself and two other businessmen, well-known businessmen who were sort of in the same industry as he was. So again, he was still known for, um, still known for carpets and carpet sales. Yeah. So the people, the people were just to fill this out were, the pilot was James L. Gordon. Yes. The uh, So it was James L. Gordon was the pilot, Robert L. Bigelow, obviously, and then two of his business associates. Um. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. 
So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Uh, what's it, uh, Mr. Dale Leitenberger? Mm-hmm. And um, I believe the other person was Carrington, right, from the carpet company. Um, yes. Yes. So uh, these so they were individuals were on construction. this Yeah, and they were coming back. They had just reviewed construction in Los Angeles. Um, they're, they're in the plane. Something, something goes awry, like Gordon is uh, piloting the plane. Something happens and crashes, killing all killing all on board. This crash happens in 1962. So the year actually that Bigelow enrolls at the university of Nevada. Yes. He's young. So he's 18 years old. Um, he is, again, his father was really young too. His father was only 41 and he was the owner of Bigelow real estate. Okay. so he's starting to move more into real estate, but he had been again, very prominent in, in carpeting. Uh, he was survived by his wife, Jewel, son, Robert, and two sisters. So, again, a very small family. The only child is Robert. So now he is, in effect, I hate to say the man of the house, but it, for that time, that he would have been sort of, again, the man of the house. He was an 18-year-old uh, going off to school. His father was, you know, and his father was tragically killed in this crash that, really did draw a lot of a lot of attention and also um also became highly litigated in the mid 60s afterwards and this is where we and as a court case this is where we find another huge name coming into Bigelow's um orbit yes so to say so this this is from a uh, this is from a New York Magazine article on Harry Reid, and uh, he's being asked about what his his where did he get this interest in space? Where did he get this interest in in sort of these strange topics? And he goes, "Well, that's that's pretty easy. When I first got out of law school uh, many many years ago in the mid '60s, I worked with three other lawyers." A big case we had involved a bunch of rich Las Vegas businessmen. They went to L.A. International Airport, tried to take off, and the plane crashed, killing them all. It was a very interesting case. It went to the Supreme Court. A mistrial mistrial was declared, hung jury. It went on for years. One of the people who was killed in that plane crash was a guy by the name of Bigelow. He was not as wealthy, but he was a wealthy man in Las Vegas who ran a carpet company, Bigelow Carpets. His son was 18 years old when, that car- when the crash occurred. He's a central figure in all this. I didn't know him, but when he was a young man, he heard the story from his grandparents driving down from Mount Charleston. And then, and then, go- and then Harry Reid goes into this, I-, I don't know, like, where's the ice cream in Mount Charleston? <laughs> but okay, so... Driving down from Mount Charleston, that's a 12,000-foot mountain just 10 miles out of Las Vegas where they saw something in the air. 
this so-called flying saucer, for lack of better description, it piques his curiosity. And then he goes on and piques his curiosity, right? So it's like, you know, so again, totally kind of, again, very different, but sort of the same. It's about the grandparents. And it's Harry Reid. So again, dear listeners, if you don't know who Harry Reid is, Harry Reid was the Senate whip, Senate Democrat whip for a number of years during, um, I want to say during the 90s and the early 2000s. He yes. had a very long, illustrative career. He was a relative, uh, I want to say, middle of the road Democrat. Yeah, he was. was. Yeah. Yeah. And heralded from um, Las, Nevada, right? Yeah. So he goes on to describe Bigelow. Yeah. He says he became a very wealthy man. I mean, extremely wealthy. Side note, for Harry Reid to be calling someone extremely wealthy, <laughs> he's got wealth. During the time he had some money, he said, I would like to know more about this. He would have had several times a year at his big office here in Las Vegas, knew how to make money buying and selling real estate. He would pay for these seminars, these conferences. He would bring in scientists, academics, a few nutcases. That's a bad way of talking about some people, but you know, people who really were, in my opinion, kind of on the fringes. And then it gets even, and then it's just like everybody, it's just, Again, this is, this is the convergence of all kinds of tropes at this point. Probably the number one TV journalist in Nevada was a guy by the name of George Knapp. He and I were friends. So let's just pause there for a minute. According to this story, Harry Reid, who would become probably one of the most prominent uh, figures in politics and, in well, Washington, and, and, D.C. And, and also, let's just let's just back up for just or let's just say this too: mm-hmm. Harry Reid, the senator whom under whom which and because of whom a tip, which was where Louis Elizondo worked and then led to to the Stars Academy. Harry Reid yes. and Robert Bigelow's friendship is the reason a tip was started. Yes. So, and that's, that's from the New York times, right? That's in the New York times article. They've never disputed that. So no. this guy, no. they meet continue. So wait, Marie. So, wait, so, wait, so wait, so wait, so wait, so here and I were friends. He had known me for years. He said to me one day, Hey, I know this guy Bigelow. He's interested in a subject. I don't know if you have any interest in it, any interest in it at all, but you should get to know him. He's got a lot of money. He's kind of an interesting guy. I'll introduce you. Go to one of those little deals and spend a few hours with him. I did that. It was really fascinating, quite frankly, because there were people trying to figure out what all this aerial phenomenon was. Bigelow knew that I was interested. He continues, I've always been a voracious reader. So anyways, anyways, to make a long story short, good job, Harry Reid. He started to send me tons of stuff. I mean, tons of stuff. I read it. A lot of it was nothing that interested me. It was, they re-examined and examined and re-examined the crash in New Mexico that happened down there. And everybody knows about that nothing, everybody knows anything about that subject. It was repetitive, so I didn't care. But there was some stuff that interested me. Um, and so then he goes into like, again, he goes into this, this, this relationship that he has with Bob Bigelow. And he says, I'm in Washington in the Senate. And Bob Bigelow calls me. I kept in touch with him over the years. He called me and said, hey, I got the strangest letter. Could I have a courier bring it to you? And I said, sure. 
He didn't want to send it over to me over he didn't want to send it to me over the lines for obvious reasons. Yeah. It's like again, like it's sort of it's a like spy what, drama. It's a spy drama. It's ridiculous. It's sort of a spy drama, but basically yeah. what the letter ends up being about is is about a ranch in Utah. So <laughs> so what this what this the gist of this article from New York magazine basically sets up a few things. It sets up that Harry Reid knew Robert Bigelow and Robert Bigelow's family when Robert was 18 years old. Yes. He then says that he didn't really know him, that that was his first, that was his first contact, or that was his first knowledge of Bigelow. But then, you know, years and years down the line, he got to know him through George Knapp. Now, here's, here's where I have a little conjecture. I'm just going to throw this out there is that Harry Reid is not a unintelligent person and is relatively calculating. And he would know as a politician or a flourishing politician in a state like Nevada who wealthy people were, because even if they weren't the same political party as him, they still would probably have some shared interests or he would be able to, you know, leverage them somehow as perhaps donors one of the most wealthy people in that state is Robert Bigelow. So to say that he had no knowledge of who Robert Bigelow was before he was introduced at one of these, you know, kooky little parties where he went and met scientists and talked about some crazy stuff, to me seems a little naive. Well, so, and that, here's... On he, top of the fact that he knew him, he knew him as an 18-year-old. When, when he himself... When Reed himself would have been very young, it would have been in one of his, if not, it would have, it would have been his first job out of law school after, yeah. after clerking. So I'm going to say here, right? So, okay. So, and just to start this off, right? So Reed, Harry Reed, Harry Reed uh, first came into the public sphere as the city attorney for Henderson, Nevada, Henderson being mm-hmm. actually where the Bigelows are from. Um, and so that was in 68. He then um, became, uh, what's the word? He then became Lieutenant Governor of Nevada from 71 to 75. And then, oh, yeah. um, and then became uh, Chairman of the Nevada Gaming Commission from 77 to 81. So what we're saying here, or so the timeline here would be, in 62, there's this plane crash where, yes. uh, where this happens. By 65, the case has already, so the case is, Lighten, it's it's uh, Leitenberger versus Gordon. It has already made its way to the Nevada Supreme Court at this point, um, being, what's the word, um, being put into or, or being looked at by, or rather having been represented by uh, Reed's law firm. So right. this case has already made its way there by 65. So I don't know if it's, but but importantly, the Bigelows are not part of that case, right? They're no. only representing the Leitenbergers, not the Bigelows. So it, it's actually, some, in my mind, in my mind, actually, it's it's not that crazy to think that they might not have known each other that well at this point, because... Except if you start thinking about the role that Harry Reid would have in zoning. Well, and so that's... In, yes. And so that's... Or in anything else that would have to do with real estate. Yes. Yeah, so let's... In the state of Nevada. So so at this point now, 
So in other words, what we're saying is there's a little bit of ambiguity in 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 how did these two figures what? actually meet? Well, and that they met so serendipitously, like right. It's oh, very strange. Snap. Hey, I got this guy. He's kind of he likes the same stuff as yeah. you. And then but, a beautiful friendship blossomed. It's the beginning of a you know, it's like the end of Casablanca or something, except yes. it's a spaceship. But just, to be to be clear. At the earliest, Reed then could have gotten the or, or at the earliest that Reed mm-hmm. could have gotten involved in this and with Bigelow would have probably been the the mid to late 80s. Because so yes. Reed becomes Nevada's first district representative in the House of Representatives in uh, 83. And then in 87, he is elected to the Senate. So. It's possible somewhere no in there they started to become friends and whatever. It's just so it's just very fascinating. These two figures have been they have been at least tangentially linked to each other's lives since 1960, right? Since since 62. Yeah. So it's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And that he listens and that he would. The other thing is that if Robert Bigelow calls him in the Senate. And says, hey, I want you to look at something. Right, they've become. This, this is a senator. This is a United States senator who probably is pretty busy, and or hopefully is pretty busy, and is like, "Hey, man, sure, have somebody bring it on over. Let's let's talk shop." Yes, but this is that's that's the type of relationship. So even if they weren't friends, uh, Reed most certainly knew who he was, and most certainly would clear his uh, calendar to talk to him. And it's to, crazy to hear from him. My God. Yeah. So it's all connected. So Bigelow finally graduates from Arizona State University, like we said, in 67 and begins his career in real estate in earnest. However, somewhere in here, he gets married to his first his his wife, not his first wife, his only wife, Diane. His only wife. Mm -hmm. And gives birth to his son and potentially a second son. But we can't really find collab- corro- uh, corroboration of that fact anywhere but a single article. But yes, we know. So we know for sure that he had a son named Rod Lee Bigelow, who was born on July 30th, 1967. That yes, that we know for sure. However, it's actually documented. We found a an article. And Marie, do you want to read the quote here? We found an article Yes. From the seventies that mentions a second son, Bobby yes. L. Bigelow. We don't know if it's L actually. That's oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So, like, okay. Bobby so Bigelow. Yeah. We, yeah. It's Bobby. It's Bobby Robert, you know, Robert Bobby Bigelow, who is supposedly mm-hmm. two years older than Rod. Yes. So it's, it's the throwaway line at the end of this article from the Las Vegas sun. Uh, June 13th, 1967, page 66. It's basically talking about how Robert Bigelow was elected to the board of directors uh, of his home saving association, which basically was a lending, how, how I would interpret it is it's a, um, it's like a bank or a lending opportunities for. Like a real estate uh, developer yeah, consortium real bank estate or developers, something. Yeah. But it's like big. And yeah. it's money. And it's like, and he, they're also saying, you know, how impressed they were because he was very young. He graduated in 67 and now, you know, a mere, you know, nine years later, or well, not nine years, but, you know, about 10 years later, he is now the director of this. And he was saying, and Bigelow says, I've been impressed with Home Savings, which is the name of this consortium for some time. 
they gave me my first business loan. And <laughs> we've had a great relationship ever since. And he's basically saying, yeah, they gave me my first loan and now I'm the board. Yeah. Now I'm the director. Sure, sure. sure. Um, which is, again, just totally a gangstar move. Um, and then at the very end, it says Bigelow and his wife, Diane, have two sons, Bobby, 10, and Rod, 8. So and again, I'm not saying like a total conjecture. I'm not saying that everything you read in the paper has been accurate. <laughs> but I would say fact-checking on something as simple as that for a – you're basically putting something in the news that is – that if you get wrong, you're going to tick off the person who is now sort of this is a puff piece about how how Rages. happy and extremely yeah and how extremely pleased they are and he's a dynamic. There's a quote that says Bob Piccolo is a dynamic young man. He has energy and knowledge. Is Papa you know and they're just like kind of gushing over him and he's sort of saying yeah they gave me my first loan. How about the yeah. apples? So. I would think that the I would think that they would have this detail right and it's a pretty simple. It's a pretty simple thing to yeah to check to, to check right. It's a pretty the, simple thing to report and check. The issue he has is two that, kids. The issue is that we have not been able to find any evidence of a second son. There's evidence the of Rod, is, yeah, but there is yeah. no evidence at all of a of an older son, Rob or Bobby. It's Bobby. possible potentially that perhaps Bobby. Uh, we don't know. know. We, we don't, don't know. know. Meta we have tragic no idea. fate. Maybe he does exist. If he does exist, or if he did, uh, he is not currently serving in any capacity in the Bigelow Corporation, as far as we could tell or surmise. So, um, while other members of the Bigelow family are, so it's a little bit of a weird thing. But you know, we're going to table it for now. We don't know exactly what's going on there, but based on everything we've seen, maybe it's an error in the newspaper, but we're not sure. Yeah, we'll try and do more research. But again, this is when just in trying to fact check really simple things about, you know, about Big his Lover. life, about, yeah, about Bigelow's life. Like, here's his wife. This is when they were married. This is how many children they had. It's very, like, those very simple things are very not, opaque. Yeah, yeah not impossible, not possible necessarily to find. So right. he, uh, he actually initially, he, so he can't, he, he just cannot cut it in the real estate market at first. And so instead, he decides actually to go to essentially a loan shark. So he describes it as being just above loan sharking, but just below like a hard, uh, like a, I don't know, like a payday loan, I guess. Somebody. But so he borrows, oh, he so borrows $20,000 at 10% interest and 10 points in his Ooh. own words. This is this is at 20. This is at 20 years old. He does this. And so he then sits on that money for a little bit until 1968. He basically spends 6,000 of it. He then after he takes that money, he basically just starts buying up properties. And what he does is he buys cheap properties, keeps them livable. You know, in his own words, basically, it's uh, he says, quote, I caught on to how to talk to sellers and convince them to sell to me on sweat equity. Little or no money down. And so what he does, and that's from Bloomberg, again, that same Bloomberg article, essentially what he does is he just buys these places, he keeps them nice, makes sure that the water works, it's got heating and, you know, all the stuff nice. you need. I mean, nice enough, right? Like, really, he's just... Okay. Uh, yeah, livable, yeah. right? These places are livable. Livable. At least in the beginning, livable. they're livable, Marie. Yeah. Then... 
then hypothetically. So yes. by 1970, he's made a million dollars in assets and finally has the liquid cash on hand to build the first really big construction project he'll do, which is a 40 room apartment complex um, actually built on the site of his childhood home. So no, um, I don't know, no uh, hard no love lost there, tucked, man. No sentimentality for yeah. Mr. Bigelow there. So he tore down that brick house. Yeah, tore, tore down that brick house like he was an atom bomb. Yeah, and so essentially he's just part of a really aggressive expansion of Las Vegas. Like he gets in at the right time and he just starts buying stuff up and and putting apartments down and everything else. So yeah. it's pretty pretty intense. And he's also he's also very um, adept with. Uh, sort of the bureaucratic side of things, right? Yeah. So with zoning and with getting lawyers in and being able to work the city council agendas and to kind of muscle for, not actual muscle, but I would say kind of being able to navigate planning and commissions and like the, the kind of stuff that where decisions are actually made in a committee and all this kind of really sort of boring, dry stuff. It's sort of like... It's he's good at getting the most out of that. Yeah, and he's, getting what he wants out of that. Yeah, he seems not just to, with money, but like, but like you know, being able to being able to to sway public opinion for this. He seems to be a particularly good palm greaser. You know, really good at, at talking to people, getting them to agree with him, getting them to get on board and trust him to do something. So, yes. in the in the late seventies, so essentially from from. The mid 60s to the 80s, he's just hustling, you know, he's hustling. I, I would say like, again, you've got that loan sharking. We were actually able to find one instance in a reporting of suspected arson. Yeah, in, in the one 70s, of properties. in 77. In the yep. seven, 77, yep. where basically arson investigators probes the smoldering ashes uh, that gutted a million million dollar complex. Yeah, there's also construction. There's also some. There's also some uh, instances where he is sued for impropriety in terms of uh, yeah. you know tenants thinking that there's housing discrimination and things. Yes. You know we don't know how true all any of that is. We can't say either way. It seems to be just based on the way that the real estate market happened in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Seems like that's not the most ridiculous accusation for real estate. Uh, But, you know, we can't say, right, for sure. Right, right. And again, like, there's probably a certain amount of this type of accidents or this type of whatever that happen in any type of industry. It's just, you know, and he is a fairly young, fairly, uh, you know, profitable, uh, Young man doing this stuff. Yeah. So I don't doubt that there would be, you know, that there would sort of, that there was have this side to it. No. So at this, at this point now, so we are now in basically the late eighties. Yes. In 1987, where Robert Bigelow founds finally budget suites of America, mm-hmm. which is really where he starts making the money, the real money. So uh, this is really where, you know, this is what he is besides the space stuff up to this point. This is what he's the most famous for. This is a guy, again, he has built himself up from, you know, kid of a middling corporate uh, impresario to real estate giant, you know, competing with Hilton and Marriott and, you know, all these other places. So uh, by the time 
but at this point now, it's hard to really tell just how much money this guy has. But at this point, he is estimated in 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 uh, in, in different pieces around the world or you know different pieces around the place, whatever that he is have he is built around fifteen thousand units and purchased another eight thousand in his career as a real estate developer. So just crazy, pretty good, absolutely crazy. It's pretty good, and it's sort of tr- this transit, this really transitory living for people who are coming into Vegas to work in Vegas, or going to places like Arizona or um, wherever. Where yeah, again, it's, maybe it's, there's industries like casinos that you would go in, and y- you maybe aren't going to stay there, but you need a cheap, relatively decent place in, to live. Oh, it's super smart. Or go budget. It's, Scientists, engineers, oil field workers, uh, you know, seasonal workers. These are places where Cocktail you can ladies. you can go, you can go and basically uh-huh. have a, a house. Or not a house, but you know, an apartment yep. kind of. So apartment. okay. At this point now, we're in the eighties. We're in the mid to late eighties. So like 85, 86, 87. This is where Robert Bigelow starts funding weird crap. This this is where it starts to happen, Marie. It's finally happening. Well, yes. Or this is where we it becomes more public. Yes, I think yes. the argument could this, be made that as he's expanded his empire within, you know, the industry, you know, uh, property development, he's also looking for other things as well. He's also cultivating other interests. Yeah, so in this is from an article in the Wall Street Journal. This is a... a, a an interview that he gave um, here again, we're going to, we're going to link over to it. Um, it's called real estate mogul reaches for the stars. Um, so this is a quote from there quote uh, before he began bankrolling UFO study. Mr. Bigelow says he prepared himself by reading 60 books, scouring used book sales for UFO literature from the fifties and sixties. Starting in the late eighties, he personally interviewed about 200 people who reported encountering UFOs. Eventually, he built a network of scientists, ranchers, and law enforcement officials who give him tips on UFO sightings and animal mutilations. They may say Bigelow is nuts, says John Paternoster, the district attorney for a remote three-county area in northeastern New Mexico that has a history of unexplained cow mutilations. That's just a hell of a resume. Um, But I say he's filled a void by providing resources to get to the bottom of all of this. End quote. So... At this what? point now, I mean, now we, so okay, we, so he, can we just really, really quickly, can I just say, so, all right, so here's a man who's running an empire pretty much, right? In Las Vegas. You can imagine the course of his day is just jam packed with just, you know, his business. He still has time to interview how many people about seeing UFOs? Yeah, he said something and like, go to yep. garage sales. It's kind of like, wild. What? When does he sleep? Like, there's this sort of, like, again, there's, I think that that is one of the things that that really is, I am both in admiration of and very uneasy about, is it doesn't seem like he has ever let up on anything. No, I don't. always, like, at this breakneck pace that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem one sustainable, but the man is, like, now in his 70s and is, is, doesn't, he doesn't seem like, but it, it, it just it it kind of freaks me out because again, like I can't find my car keys. Just wait till you know, we get to the glass door. Any given morning, 
Yeah, I mean, it's like, I know, but right? Right? But it's like, there's just, there is this sort of this drive. It's just like, so, so he's not only, he's not only just interested in, 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 in learning more about UFOs or about whatever the phenomenon is. He is going to devour it, right? There is not a single kind of um, avenue that he is not going to tear apart to find out more about it. And that to me is like that voraciousness is is unsettling because yeah. it's also like it's at, it's it is very admirable because you're like, oh, my God, that's somebody who's really has a passion about it. But it's like, oh, my God, that's also what Victor Frankenstein was like. Well, it's like it's like when someone is just super intense about something, you know, it's like you go, you know, you go to someone's house to watch the Super Bowl thinking you're all going to get drunk and have a good time and eat chips and whatever. And there's one guy there who like every single call, he's ready to flip the table. You know what I mean? It's, it's like that. He's so, he seems so intense about this that, uh, I mean, I don't know. I think for a lot of people, you get involved in this stuff cause it's kind of fun. You know, it's kind of weird. It's like, it's a spooky thing. You know, it's, it's, it's fun as, fun as yeah. crap. All right. So, uh, in particular at this point, so we, we know, that Bigelow is is in the scene at least of the UFO world in the, in this time period in the milieu of the UFO world. Kind of the big names at the time are you know Stanton Friedman, um, uh, what's it? Uh, John Carpenter, right? Um, uh, John Schusler. These these people. Uh, you know Bob Lazar is going to be a big name that'll come up here again. There's all these people that are are really starting to make, uh, starting to make, or, or, you know, the names that you can think of, right? Linda Moulton Howe, George Knapp. Yeah. These are the people that are going to be important. And it turns out that Bigelow has been involved in almost, with almost all of them in one way or the other. So uh, in particular, we have documentation of a couple of them. So for instance, um, he founded, actually, he ended up founding or founding a uh, company, a short-lived company with Bob Lazar. Um, the company, um, and these documents actually made their way onto the internet, uh, some time ago, and you can still find them. We'll link them over. But so the company is called, uh, the, the company is called Zeta Reticuli, uh, Zeta Reticuli Corporation. And so it lists Robert Bigelow, um, as the, the main shareholder, then, uh, Gene Huff and Bob Lazar, Gene Huff and Bob Lazar being friends with each other. And then, uh, and of course, you know, Gene Huff helping to produce Bob Lazar's documentary and, and things like that. And then Pamela J. Bauscher, who is part of a lot of Bigelow Enterprises. This, I, I can't tell if Pamela is a real person or a fake name. Bigelow has a couple of different names that get mm -hmm. attached to a lot of his corporations. One, Another one is Ricky Golightly um, that appears to be- Who's a real person. Who, yeah, who is a real person, but is- it's so hard to so it's it's hard to parse, right? Bigelow uses that go lightly, seems to give that go lightly name a lot for all of his companies. Um and is he really involved? Is he just a name that Bigelow uses, right? It's it's a it's it's hard to to pin it all down. But anyways, um the the idea here, some of the ideas here were that this would be a company that would allow Lazar to get the funding he needed through Bigelow to basically reverse engineer element 115, right? Lazar's big claim. However, uh, the, the program went completely kaput when it was became obvious that Lazar was a goddamn fraud. 
So this is a this is a quote from Jacques Vallée uh, in Forbidden Science. Quote. Bob Bigelow once created a company with Bob Lazar, the Zeta Reticuli Corporation, to exploit the wondrous supposed properties of Element 115. Lazar exhibited a substance that was light, foam-like, and almost weightless, hinting it would revolutionize energy and propulsion. The cooperation only lasted until the day Bob noticed a container of Lazar's secret sauce in a corner and recognized it as a commercial emulsive product, end quote. Other arguments have said that Lazar tried to pass off an aerogel, um, which, again, is a type of material that we have known about since like the late 60s, early 70s-ish, somewhere around there. Um, that, again, it's it's solid like a rock, but it's extremely light because it's very, very uh, porous. There's, there's not a lot of density there. However, regardless, uh, Lazar and, and Bigelow only worked together for a very short time before Bigelow discovered that Lazar was full of it and not worth funding. Yep. And he took his money elsewhere, right? Yes. I mean, he, and again, it's like he's, he doesn't suffer fools. Yeah. And there's not, there's not, uh, in for, you know, to say, or to, to say, or think in my mind, Bob Bigelow, not funding your UFO, uh, project after mm-hmm. having funded it for some time is the biggest condemnation of that project. You know, this is a that's guy. Probably, yeah, that's probably the death knell. Yeah, yeah, that's not good, right? It does not look good that's for Bob good. Lazar. So that's not good. Uh, you know, and we have our own views on Bob Lazar, right? Namely, that he's uh, a fraud. But um, yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> well, I it's was relatively agnostic about it until we did. Sure, that. sure, yeah. All right, the other. Uh, yes, another, I'm on this. I'm on your. Kid. Another group of people that he worked with was Stanton Friedman and Don Berliner. Specifically in their investigation of the St. Augustine crash of 1947. Now, this is a crash. Marie, I don't know. Do you know anything about the St. Augustine crash? I have no idea. So it is it is the St. Augustine crash is actually a second crash that occurred during the Roswell event. Uh, that not a lot of people know about. It's a it's a super important subject. Mm. If we do a Roswell <laughs> case on this show, oh, it will be about St. Augustine. It will not be about the stupid freaking, you know, aluminum foil in the desert shit. <laughs> All right. So come on. This is actually from an article uh, given at a QFOS conference um, by Stanton Friedman and Don Berliner. Uh, QFOS being the Center for UFO Studies uh, from J. Allen Hynek. So a uh, quote, again, this is from a Stanton Friedman piece. We'll link it as always. Quote, the only direct contact between R.S. and Anderson had been in a 50-minute phone conversation in February 1990 between Randall and Anderson. Friedman, after several conversations with Anderson, won his confidence and involved psychiatric social worker John Carpenter, Berliner, and various others, especially businessman Robert Bigelow, who supported an extensive effort by Friedman et al. to investigate the Anderson story. Carperton, Car- Carpenter... Berliner, Friedman, Anderson, and Bigelow all went to the PSA and searched for the site noted by Anderson on a map he sketched after hypnosis session with Carpenter. An initial helicopter pass wound up near the actual location, found the next day by Anderson, with Carpenter following behind. Considerable testimony that backed up Anderson's case was obtained, end quote. Now, John Carpenter is going to be an extremely important figure that we are going to get to next episode. He is the seminal figure in the Carpenter affair, a huge scandal mm-hmm. whereby Bigelow was purchasing the confidential records of abduction hypnosis sessions 
from Carpenter. Um, okay. It's just so. Yeah. Other people that he's worked, he was working with during this time period are uh, Linda Moulton Howe on the cattle mutilation studies. Um, you know, he's just, he's, he's going around, right? He's working with the folks at, at MUFON. He's helping to have these discussions with folks, John Schusler. A lot of the people that we are going to come to know is the NIDS team. He meets during this time period and starts getting involved with. Um, we're going to get into that more next time, but really at this point in time, you know, it's around 1992, a, a seminal turning point in his life occurs. At least we don't know that it's seminal, but we believe it might be. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So. And, but he's, he's got his day job. Like, let's not forget that. Yeah. He's still buying and building hotels and stuff and managing them and everything else. He still has an entire day job. Right. So, so I just don't know when he has time to do all this. In uh in 1992, his his son Rod Lee Bigelow dies. Mm -hmm. We don't know how he died. Um, Bigelow will later say that it was an accident. However, there is documentary evidence to suggest that it was a suicide. Um, you know, in either in either case, a tremendous tragedy for somebody who, you know, has yeah. just worked his worked his ass off you know i can't even you know i can't imagine the kind of pain i mean first off just the pain you would feel at losing a child you know but on top of that yeah. to have built this to have built this uh this thing that you hope to give to a child yeah you know or that you hope to, to just have to yeah. just be able to govern so much control over self over right like right. again Here's here's somebody who has governed his own narrative, his own story, who's been able to have like a real amount of autonomy and control and has been able to just persevere. Right. Yes. Hard work. He's 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 definitely, you know, he might have been a ball buster. He might have been very unpopular with some with some people. Um, but at the same time, it's like he never. He strikes me as someone who always would speak in a relatively quiet voice, especially when he's being interviewed. He doesn't seem like he raises his voice very much, and he just has this feeling of being really in control of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I think the idea of of loss or having something that, you know, really ultimately comes from you and for so much of their life is under your domain or under your control as a child, you know, to have something happen that you're not able to, that you're not able to predict or you're not able to stop or you're not able to see what happened, um, you know, must, that really is rattling. I yeah, mean, it just, yeah. for, I, think, I would again say for anyone, anyone who experiences loss experiences that. Well, it's a feeling I think too of this is somebody just through the way that we, we know he operates from discussions with people who've worked with him and everything else. This is somebody who really, like you said, um, needs control, you know, who, and I think that's true of a lot of type a kind of people, you know, people who are very successful in this way. This is a guy who feels like, you know, he needs to control his, his environment. And the fact that so much of his personal life has led out of his, con out of his control in a really, uh, I don't know, a really tragic way with his father's death, then his son Rod, 
you know, it's, 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 it sucks. It's, it's, I can't imagine. So, you know, and again, um, this is, this is considered. So before we started this series, this is the rumor that goes around in the UFO world that it is the death of Rod, his son, which leads Bigelow to start doing research into these subjects. However, we know that it, that, that can't, the timeline there doesn't work. doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. He had been already invested in this. Now, another part of this story or another kind of shade on this story is that it hit him and his, he and his son bonded over these kinds of investigations and stories and things. They both were interested. And so this is something of a memorial, you know, to continue this kind of, this kind of work. We, we don't know, you know what I mean? Either way, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know. I, you, you don't even know really what to say in an instance like this. It's just, it, it sucks. It sucks for him. And, and we're sorry that it happened. Yeah. And I think that that's, I, I think that that to me, again, it's like, it's, he definitely strikes again from the cursory research that we've done as someone who is the, you know, as he wants knowledge, he's, he wants to know, he wants to know these things about UFOs. He wants to talk to science. He wants proof. Absolutely. You know, he doesn't like the frauds. He, he, you know, he will, you know, he, he takes whatever he can earn and puts it back into this, mm-hmm. like millions of dollars, yep. you know, to find out, to find out something that is not known. And I think that that is, you know, it's, I, I, while I don't think it's like the, it may not be the root cause of what started all of it. I mean, the idea of is that really the the most unknowable or the greatest unknowable thing is, is, is the mortality of yourself and the ones you love. Right. And mm-hmm. what happens, what happens when they are no longer there. And I think that that to me is like, even if he wasn't answering it after, I think that that was the question that, you know, again, what, what is beyond our knowledge? What is beyond the veil of us yeah. knowing or the beyond of our experience and how can I find that out is something that, you know, that's again, beyond the consciousness. And so and I think uh, that that's a huge thing. I, I, yeah, absolutely. And so that, that part of it, like that Maria's hinting to that, perhaps maybe this wasn't the thing that started his interest in UFOs. However, this does appear to have been an, a catalyst into his looking into more non UFO related subjects. And by that, we mean things like life after death or consciousness or, you know, these sorts of things. So we have we have some quotes here. So, quote, this is from Jacques Vallée, again, from Forbidden Sciences, volume four. And actually, this uh, this come this has really gone over well in a blog by Keith Basterfield, which um, we'll we'll link in the show notes. But so, uh, quote, uh, this is again from Jacques Vallée, Jacques Vallée. So, quote. Bob became fascinated with survival research after his 22 year old son died a few years ago in the desert end quote. Um, and again, survival research here means survival of, of consciousness, right? Survival of the soul, whatever you want to call it. Um, another one from that same wall street journal argument or article we mentioned earlier, um, quote, the 1992 death of Mr. Bigelow's son may have increased his interest in the great beyond. A few years later, Mr. Bigelow and his wife, Diane, donated $3.7 million to establish the Bigelow Chair in Consciousness Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. It is a rotating chair that goes to prominent life-after-death researchers. 
Mr. Bigelow says his wife, who declined to comment for this story, shares his convictions about extraterrestrial life, but doesn't have his zeal for the hunt. She's a believer, Mr. Bigelow says. She just says, so what? End quote. Yeah, he doesn't say so what. That's <laughs> no, like, he doesn't. It does, no. not, it does not strike me that he's capable of so what. No, he Even says, I, he says, I want to know never, what it is yeah. and I want to buy it and I want to own it. And sell it. Yeah, I'm going to own it. And it's just, uh, I don't even know about, like, you think selling it, like, I feel like that's almost like a byproduct. Like, it's more of like the. No, we're going to get into some of his. We're going to get into it. We're going to get into some of his quotes about NASA and uh, privatization of space. He wants to sell it. Anyways, dear listeners. So that's (laughs) that's it for Bigelow part one. So. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. It has been a tremendous amount of effort, Marie, to find all this stuff. It's been a lot of fun. It Um, really has been. Allegedly. Again, this has been all hypothetical. If if you don't hear us, check in, you know, on Twitter. Just just check in. Just on Twitter, just... Just check in every so often just to make sure you know. Yeah, check in. So, uh, again... We're not on some ranch in Utah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Next week, we will be back with part uh, three of the Bigelow series, uh, this time talking about uh, talking a little bit less about Bigelow, but a lot more about the team that he will build, which will become known as NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Sciences, that NIDS. will eventually buy the world's spookiest ranch. All right. Aww. What a time, Marie. Thank you, dear listeners. Ah. Good night. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. We love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, Uh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 